But gas also has a long-term role to play in terms of manufacturing. It's a feedstock for key industrial activity. Uh, so, you know, this is consistent with the International Energy Agency scenarios of net zero, where gas plays this long-term role. Uh, and in more recent work that uh, the Australian Energy Producers has released uh, by Ernst & Young that mapped out actually net zero scenarios for Australia, uh, we looked at three different scenarios. All of them require uh, continued investment in natural gas and see a long-term role for natural gas in supporting the transition to net zero. That's the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Producers, Samantha McCulloch, talking just this morning on Radio National's Breakfast Program. And she was arguing that those of us who see carbon capture and storage as being a waste of time, a waste of money are being disingenuous. I would argue that she is the one being disingenuous because carbon capture and storage has not effectively been scaled up anywhere in the world. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you along. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now let's have a listen to that interview that was on Radio National's breakfast program just this morning. The Federal Court has dismissed a case brought by Tiwi traditional owners against gas company Santos, allowing the construction of a gas export pipeline between Darwin and the Timor Sea to continue. In November last year, Santos was forced to pause its pipeline works on the project after Tiwi applicants, represented by the Environmental Defenders Office, lodged an urgent injunction. They argued that Santos had failed to adequately assess whether its pipeline would damage underwater cultural heritage sites and sacred dreaming places along the pipeline's route. For more on this now, I'm joined by Samantha McCulloch, Chief Executive of Australian Energy Producers. Welcome back to Breakfast. Oh, good morning, Sally. What's your response to this ruling? Look, this was certainly a, a welcome uh, decision and it does put an end now to this latest round of lawfare that we've seen against the Barossa project. Um, here we're talking about a project that's really important for Australia and for our region it's a $6 billion investment that will really deliver critical gas supply um, to Australia and to our trading partners, as well as hundreds of jobs and substantial economic benefits. Uh, so it's very much welcome, and this verdict now allows the project to immediately move ahead with those pipeline-laying activities. What does it mean for the wider industry? How is it being interpreted? Well, I think uh, it's, again, a welcome decision that's providing more confidence for investment. Uh, what we've seen over the last 12 or 18 months in terms of the offshore regulatory environment is a lack of clarity around the requirements. It's a system uh, that the government has acknowledged needs to be addressed uh, because we haven't had the certainty that's uh, needed around environmental approvals to enable projects to move forward. Uh, so it's certainly a welcome development. Uh, there's still going to be a need for regulatory changes to deal with some of the complexity and uncertainty uh, that we are seeing in the offshore environment. Uh, but it's, uh, again, um, you know, an important step forward for the industry. So what's the industry calling for exactly when it comes to clarification of the regulations? 
So this is not uh, specifically to the current uh, Barossa decision, but what we've seen is a lack of clarity and certainty around consultation requirements for environmental approvals. Uh, this has seen projects really be delayed by months and months. We've seen the consultation uh, requirements uh, expand and and. Um, to the point that's really causing consultation fatigue, not just for those that need to be consulted, but also adding considerable cost and delays to these projects. It's coming at a time where there's an urgent need to bring new gas supply online, uh, including for the Australian domestic market on both the east and west coasts, uh, but also because of that important role that gas is playing in supporting the energy transition in our region and helping to decarbonise our, our trading partners. And is it correct, even though there's been a win for Santos with this particular decision, they still have several more uh, permissions that they need to gain to go ahead with the project in total? They can resume work on this pipeline but permission for the wider project, they still have some more regulatory hurdles to, to jump? Well, look, this is, is typical for all of these major projects. I mean, we currently have around $36 billion of oil and gas investments around Australia. That's around half of the pipeline of all resource projects. For these offshore projects, uh, they do need to seek uh, environmental approvals for particular activities as they move forward with those projects. And again, because of the urgent need for new gas and the importance of these projects, uh, we really need to see that certainty in the offshore regulatory environment. Some conservationists have expressed concerns about what the long term looks like for communities such as the Tiwi Islands, that some of those islands may be in grave danger from rising sea levels by 2070. How can companies like Santos and the industry guarantee the survival and the safety, survival of these communities and the safety of this project, given that some of the, uh, the components of these projects are still yet to be tested when it comes to uh, carbon capture and, and storage in particular? Yeah, well, look, let's, when we take a step back and look at net zero now, the industry is absolutely committed to net zero by 2050. We're taking steps and in investing in technologies, including carbon capture and storage to facilitate that. But importantly, a successful transition to net zero requires natural gas. It requires more natural gas and it requires projects like Barossa to be able to move forward. Uh, that's because we're relying on gas more and more as we seek to phase out coal and to support the increased deployment of renewables, particularly in the power sector. But gas also has a long-term role to play in terms of manufacturing. It's a feedstock for key industrial activity. Uh, so, you know, this is consistent with the International Energy Agency scenarios of net zero where gas plays this long-term role. Uh, and in more recent work that uh, the Australian Energy Producers has released uh, by Ernst & Young that mapped out actually net zero scenarios for Australia, uh, we looked at three different scenarios. All of them require uh, continued investment in natural gas and see a long-term role for natural gas in supporting the transition to net zero. Are you satisfied that CCS will work on a large scale? There are deep concerns about it. Look, CCS is a proven technology. It works. There are more than 30 projects operating around the world uh, and we know that this will be a key technology for net zero. And that's, that's supported by the International Energy Agency, the IPCC, that find that you cannot get to net zero without this technology. It has to play a role and we know it can play a role. And actually, when we look around the world, there's 
you know, very significant momentum around this technology. There are more than 500 projects being developed around the world, including in the United States, including in Europe. But you understand uh, there are these concerns. countries have recognised this but, important role. But you understand there are deep concerns about that technology still. But I would suggest that those concerns in some ways are, are somewhat disingenuous because we know this technology works. We've got evidence. We've got a project in Norway that's been operating for more than a quarter of a century, storing million tonnes of CO2 each year. We know this technology works. We know we need it. And the oil and gas industry has actually been at the forefront of ensuring that we can deploy this technology. It's important not just for our industry, uh, but also heavy industry, cement, steel, uh, chemicals production. Samantha McCulloch, we need to leave it there. Thank you. Thanks very much. Let's shift now to a story from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. The story is written by Jessica McKenzie and it has the headline, Bill McKibben explains what individuals can do to win the climate fight together. The story begins. Few writers have chronicled the age of the climate crisis as close as Bill McKibben over the past 35 years. And even fewer have done so while also kick-starting multiple environmental groups and advocacy campaigns for climate action. He has kept the pulse of the crisis and the movement to address it since first covering the climate crisis debate, as it was then, the New York Review of Books in 1988. You'll find a link to Jessica's story in the show notes. Next we have a story from the conversation by the Professor from the School of Economics at the University of Queensland, John Quiggin. The headline for John's story is, As the billionaires gather at Davos, it's worth examining what's become of their dreams. The story begins. Gathering for the annual World Economic Forum at Davos in Switzerland this week, the world's business and political elite will be digesting some unpleasant reading courtesy of the aid agency Oxfam International. Oxfam's annual report on the global inequality released this morning shows the wealth of the world's five richest billionaires has more than doubled since the start of the decade, while 60% of humanity has grown poorer. Among the findings of the report entitled Inequality Inc. are that billionaires own US $3 trillion more than they did three years ago, meaning their wealth has grown at three times the rate of inflation. Even in Australia, the wealth of billionaires has climbed 70%. Five billion other people can't afford what they could three years ago. Progress in Africa, which seemed promising for much of the century, has stalled since COVID. And large parts of the populations in wealthy countries feeling left behind have been lured by the appeal of right-wing populism, ironically, largely promoted by billionaires and their advocates. Next, we have an intro to a uh, webinar organised by the Bolton of the Atomic Scientists. The title for the webinar is The Climate Nuclear Nexus. What climate change means for nuclear security. First, we have the intro, and you'll find a link for the entire event in the show notes. I'm thrilled to be in conversation with two uh, brilliant experts on climate and nuclear affairs, whose full bios are in the description, and I won't read out in the interest of time, but... Um, Sherry Goodman chairs the board of the Council on Strategic Risks, 
And Jamie Kwan is a fellow in the nuclear policy program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And so before I turn it over to the speakers and get into the conversation, just a couple of very brief uh, framing comments. So nuclear technologies and climate change both threaten humanity. But today's conversation is framed, is rooted in a further key concept, which is that nuclear and climate phenomena are woven together, part of the same fabric. And so what I'm hoping for Sherry and Jamie to help us with today is to pull on two uh, distinct but related threads of that fabric. One, how might climate change undermine nuclear deterrence and make the use of nuclear weapons more likely? In other words, um, Climate change is a threat multiplier and an accelerator of conflict. So what might this mean in countries or regions with a nuclear dimension? And two, um, climate change has created a global decarbonization imperative. And nuclear power has regained prominence in uh, policy debates about how to move away from fossil fuels and alleviate energy uh, poverty. Uh, yet. Uh, bringing about a more nuclearized world would create critical challenges that require leadership and policy development to manage safely. So Sherry, I'm hoping to start with you. Um, at COP28, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, just uh, at the end of last year, uh, some two dozen countries announced plans to triple global nuclear capacity by mid-century. But interestingly, uh, the declaration also cites UN Sustainable Development Goal number seven um, for clean and affordable energy. Um, and nuclear's role in bringing that about. So I'm hoping you can start us off by describing a bit about the relationship between the, the SDGs and climate and nuclear policy. Now, please don't forget, you'll find the link for that webinar in the show notes. Now we have two 90-second pieces from the IO Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz, and this is Climate Connections. There's nothing fun about living through an extreme weather disaster. But to help kids and families stay safe in an emergency, FEMA and the American Red Cross have teamed up to make disaster preparedness a game. If children grow up understanding the importance of disaster preparedness, they'll grow into being prepared adults. Aaron Levy is the Director of Individual and Community Preparedness at FEMA. He says the free printable game is part of the Prepare with Pedro campaign. It's a preparedness education program with storybooks and activities starring a cartoon penguin in a hard hat named Pedro. In the game, players match cards naming different types of hazards with cards describing how to stay safe during those events. For example, never play in flood water. It also teaches kids about things that their families can do to prepare for a disaster, like making a family evacuation plan. I have an 11-year-old, and I know when she comes home very excited from school and wants us to participate in something, it really gets our entire family excited. So he says getting young people engaged in the basics of emergency readiness can also help inspire adults to prepare for increasingly extreme weather. In downtown Brooklyn, a new skyscraper is nearing completion. The 44-story building has more than 400 apartments, retail space, a gym and yoga studio, a rooftop pool, and more than 200 bicycle parking spots. But it does not have any gas lines. The building is New York City's first all-electric skyscraper, with electric induction stovetops, electric heat pump dryers, and all-electric heat throughout the building. We're hoping that by leading by example, our industry peers will come along with us. Jared Delavalle is the CEO of Alloy, the development company behind the project. 
He says relying on efficient electrical systems is cleaner and better for the climate. And the benefits of electrifying buildings will grow as more of the power on the grid comes from renewable sources, like solar and wind. The Brooklyn skyscraper is also designed to minimize the demand for energy, with triple-pane windows and heavily insulated walls, so less heat escapes to the outside. Our perspective certainly is that we have an obligation as architects and developers to instigate change and to show what's possible. And the technology is now with us such that we can make this change. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Join me now on a trip to Davos, and you'll find a link to the story in the show notes. For most of the year, Davos is a popular ski resort in the Swiss Alps. But for seven days a year, it becomes a global summit, attracting leaders from the public and private sector. On the agenda this year, geopolitics, climate change, the future of AI. The motto? Rebuilding trust. Some would link the erosion of trust uh, to the deep transformations that we are seeing all around us, be they technological, geopolitical, societal, or those related to climate uh, and nature. And some would also say that uh, all these transformations taken together have ushered in a, uh, if not a completely new uh, era, at least a stark new uh, reality. What's striking about this gathering is that the main shopping street here in Davos Village transforms into an open-air trade fair. In fact, the majority of business representatives around here don't even have an access patch to the main Congress Centre. My name is Teku. Uh, We are here with the Amazon Sacred Headwaters Alliance. And we are looking for allies who want to join us in the protection of one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. I brought me to Davos, a broad networking. I'm a biotech and a digital health founder and investor. So I've got a, a large ecosystem of people I'm going to meet. Um, my name is Rania, and I am a high school student from the United States. And I came to just intern and help out um, some of my family friends here. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Ukraine's President Zelensky, some of the main political headliners that will be passing through Davos this week. Whether or not they manage to reach that goal, that motto of rebuilding trust. Come with me now as we move to The Guardian for a story by Dana Noor. It has the headline, PR giant Edelman works with Cock Network despite climate pledges. The story begins. Edelman, the world's largest public relations company, was among the Charles Koch Foundation's highest-level paid vendors in 2022, a 9.90 tax disclosure form shows alarming climate advocates. The PR giant made numerous climate declarations over the past decade, including making a pledge to eschew projects promoting climate denial. Partnering with a part of the Koch network, which has long worked to sow climate doubt, calls those pledges into question, said Duncan Measel, the executive director of Clean Creatives, a non-profit pushing creative agencies to cut ties with fossil fuel polluters. A relationship with the Koch network puts them totally out of step with their stated climate commitments, said Measel. 
a Needleman spokesman said the company's contract with the foundation ended one year ago. But that was well after Edelman published climate statements that should have ruled out such a contract, said Measel, who shared the 2022 text document with The Guardian. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, if you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, please contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get your voice on this podcast, hear what you've got to say about the climate crisis. Please contact me. Also, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And beyond that, I'd love to know what you think about this podcast, so please tell me. Don't hold back. Good or bad, please let me know. Same email address. number 7 at iCloud.com Now please share this, because it's important we do that, because we need as many people as possible to know what's happening with the climate crisis, who's saying what, why they're saying it, and what they're going to do about it. And maybe you can do something, so... This information will help you change your mind. Maybe it'll move you in some way that you will do something good to help ameliorate the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now you stay safe, and please take care.